Durango arrived by late afternoon, a true western town in the now familiar layout. Old town encompassing bars, tourist joints, main street, and in the newer part of town where the motels and chain restaurants lie. We dumped our bags and snuck into old Durango for a look around. Massachusetts Street in Lawrence, Kansas was really nice, but Durango's main street had it beat. I mean, where else can you walk to the end of Maine to find an enormous snow-covered mountain there? It was dusk, almost dark, and Durango was changing. The tourist shops were open for a little while longer, but now the neon lights of Apri ski bars were blinking into life. We ate at a fantastic restaurant picked at random from the phone book, and on the way home, had to swerve to avoid a deer standing in the middle of the road. We're definitely in the mountains. The weather and day had changed. Emily threaded the car through the Silver Street Mountains around Durango under cobalt blue skies while I hypothesised that clichés and platitudes are often the only reference point we have to go on when visiting an area new to us, and thus we use them to validate whatever we encounter. Colorado, or at least the little part I saw of it, tended to fit the idea that I had in my mind. We drove through some scabby Indian reservations before turning onto a dirt road for the short journey to Four Corners, perhaps the one geographical point in the USA that anyone can find on a map. It's here that Colorado, New Mexico, Utah and Arizona come together, and it is, predictably, on the road to nowhere. It was surprisingly busy for a Sunday morning, most of the trestle tables being occupied by Native Americans selling Navajo necklaces and the like. There's a small plaza-like monument at the actual intersection, big enough for people like me to lie on it in a starfish shape and thus have either an arm or a leg in a separate state. When I got bored impersonating sea life, I took a wander around the assorted shacks, buildings and outhouses surrounding the corners. An open door led me to a smiling Indian lady waving her arm across a table of necklaces. Another Indian lady beckoned me through to an anteroom, which I previously hadn't seen. Her name was Lynn Elwood, and she and her husband made sand paintings. Sand paintings are, quite obviously, paintings that have been constructed using mostly sand. A demonstration was undertaken, apparently for my benefit, with Lynn doing a Jackson Pollock on a small section of canvas. As good as it was, I was not convinced that a piece of art constructed largely in the medium of sand was going to stand up to the two and a half months of travel I still had to do. I imagined handing over the painting to my mum and her opening it to find a blank canvas sitting in a neat pile of sand. Emily and I sat for a while staring at the four corners, wondering why we were here staring at a couple of invented lines, one of the few tourist attractions on the planet that isn't actually visible. I stood up and walked off. Where are you going? asked Emily. Uh, Colorado. Cute. One of the stalls sold Native American food, the house specialty being fry bread, a sort of Native American funnel cake. We ordered two regular with powdered sugar. A German couple in front of us had ordered the general, the most elaborate and expensive fry bread based food on the menu. Their order took so long that we were just about finished ours when they got theirs. Being German, the man took charge and grabbed both paper plates. Unfortunately for him, the weight of the food meant he had to tip both plates back at an angle, resulting in him receiving stunningly hot spicy tomato sauce up his arm, making him scream, throw down both plates and yell, Is this soup or taco? At the next table but one, a small, red, ginger-bearded man 
and his wife sat discussing the four corners. My GPS seemed to insist the actual four corners was a mile to the north, even using the NAD27 data and accounting for the 2.5-minute meridian offset. Guess I'll have to figure that one out when I get home. Before leaving, we drove around all four states in 10 seconds, like everyone does when they come here. Then we set off in the direction of Arizona, arriving some 30 seconds after leaving the Four Corners Road. Amid desolate and moon-like surroundings, I nosed the Accord off the shoulder and in the direction of Monument Valley, straddling the Utah-Arizona border. From the car, every outcrop, crag, butte, hillock and rock pile looked like Monument Valley to me. But it wasn't until we got to the famous long, straight stretch of road that Tom Hanks ran up in Forrest Gump, and that has been featured in countless other commercials and movies, that we knew we'd arrived. If you had to think of 17 great natural or man-made sites to see, Monument Valley would be up there with the pyramids. This was the West. This was the landscape I recall from watching movies in the 1970s, made in the 1950s, pretending to depict the 1880s. This was America. This was the reason I was doing the trip. We put in for the night at a place called Goldings, a lodge-type accommodation on the reservation run by Navajos, really the only place to stay in the area. I like the Navajo people. They're friendly if a little reserved. They're kind of quiet, but they're respectful. What they're not great at, though, is customer service. I mean, they aren't bad. They just could be a little better. We found this out at dinner where after a long wait, neither of us got what we ordered. Before bed, we drove to the local store, about a quarter of a mile away from the lodge. This was the only general store in the whole reservation and was full of Navajos. A sign on the door said, we take reservation coupons. On the way back, Emily pulled over and killed the lights. The store and lodge, only a few hundred yards from where we sat, were barely distinguishable. The dark had enveloped them. I realised for the first time just how dark and lonely a place the West must have been before general stores and lodges for travellers lit up even a small portion of it. We got up early the following morning to watch the sunrise over the valley, a spectacular sight as you could imagine. To follow that would be hard, but we were going to spend part of the day at the Grand Canyon, and that's as good a setting best as I can think of. Around two hours into our drive that day, we stopped at a Burger King in, in Cayenta, Arizona a town of smart but similar housing that appeared to be home to mainly Native Americans. Inside the Burger King and forming part of the restaurant is a small museum dedicated to the Navajo Code Talkers, a bunch of guys who were instrumental in ensuring the Americans took Iwo Jima and laterally the Allies won the Second World War. Turns out a guy called Richard Mike, the son of one of the original Code Talkers, King Mike, owned this Burger King and thought it a perfect place to create a museum that would be seen by more than just the dedicated history buff. I was fascinated. Once the United States had entered the war in 1941, it became apparent that the Axis powers were adroit codebreakers, and because of this, the Allies required something that was unbreakable. Philip Johnson, a non-Navajo who had grown up on a Navajo reservation, suggested Navajo language to the US Navy a couple of weeks after Pearl Harbor. Predictably, the US Army were initially sceptical about the whole thing, and the Navajos were of the opinion that they had no business interfering in a white man's war. However, both parties eventually got together, and an initial group of 30 Navajos were picked to be trained as code talkers. By 1943, almost 200 people had been recruited from reservations all over the area we were in now, and by the end of the war, there were over 450 of them. 
The exhibits explained in some detail how the code talkers would invent new Navajo words for any English words that there were no direct translations for, and mixed what words they did have as an added problem for anyone unfortunate enough to be given the task of cracking the code. The result was a code that was nigh impossible to crack. There'd be no Navajo speakers anywhere outside of the United States, and only about 40 non-Navajos who could understand the lingo. Even if a Navajo had been captured and forced to translate the code, all they'd have would be a jumble of seemingly random words. Couple this with the fact that the Navajo language is based on shifting vocal tones and does not exist in a written form, and you have the perfect unbreakable code. Indeed, Japanese General Saizo Arasu, the chief of intelligence, speaking after the war, stated that as far as the Japanese were concerned, the code was a puzzle that could never be solved. Halfway from Nowheresville, population 7, a hand-painted sign pointed up a dirt track and said, Dinosaur footprints! We turned in and parked next to a large truck with blackened out windows and its engine running. Before we had properly got out of the car, a 40-something guy of Native American extract approached and asked us where we were from. Without listening to our answer, he told us that we were in luck as he was in a position to show us the dinosaur footprints. You know, I loved his poorly constructed narrative, which I'm, I, I'm, I've no doubt it was the 10,000th time he delivered it, based loosely around his granddad, whom he told us had died aged 120 the prior year. It weaved from one topic to the next with no preamble or explanation. What I gathered, though, was that these fossilised footprints were on Indian reservation land and that he and his family were very poor. We were gradually being led away from our car until it was almost out of sight, and I half wondered if this was some ruse and a posse of guys were pouring out of the SUV next to the Accord, and right now we're attaching a tow cable to it, leaving us in the blistering sun. I'm not being prejudiced. Anybody who had walked us out there would be under suspicion, and I was certainly suspicious. The footprints were okay. Others required more imagination for you to say they were footprints. After the guy had shown us the last set, I knew what was coming. He brought out some money and fed us a curious light. He goes, I, I have six dollars here. If you give me fourteen, that will make twenty. I thought, well, yeah, it will, but there's no way I'm giving you fourteen bucks for pointing at some rock formations which may or may not have been dinosaur footprints. I gave him two dollars, which he held up to the light, then, without thanks, pocketed the bills and walked away. As the car was still there, we got back into the deserted highway and drove into the sun. On empty roads south of nowhere, it's easy to speed. So much so that we missed the sign and turnoff for the Grand Canyon and wasted 20 miles and 20 minutes to get back to the turnoff. It's a pretty poor sign for a rather large hole. I'd been to the canyon before, but this was the first for Emily, and she was duly impressed. I mean, there's a certain amount of snobbery involved when you visit. The masses visit the South Rim for about an hour. The elite visit the hardest to get North Rim. They take a donkey ride to the canyon floor. They charter an ecologically friendly rafting expedition along the length of the Colorado River. Pressed for time, we spent an hour at the South Rim, then walked back to the car. It's a sight to see. However, the canyon's just kind of a hole in the ground, right? It doesn't move or make noises or have a vibrant historical downtown. It's just a hole. It is, in essence, the opposite of a mountain. The sun was almost down to the rim as we left the car park and headed for Sedona, a couple of hours south of here. 
The countryside that I was able to see in the darkening gloom was nothing like the Arizona of your imagination. Northern Arizona looks more like Colorado, pine trees and snow. It's not until you get near Sedona, south of Flagstaff, that things change to a more recognisable rocks and sand of the movies. Talking of Sedona, Sedona's the red rock place. This small town's supposedly a vortex for New Age powers, meaning every wacko, weirdo, crusty and as yet unclassified New Age person has at one time paid homage by stopping there. Sedona's beautiful, man. In a world where that word is used far too often, it means it when Sedona's concerned. You know, we found a room, we showered and we went for dinner at a restaurant along the street. I'd eaten there a couple of years before on my first visit to Sedona. And I'd been talking it up all day, telling Emily about the fantastic double-baked potato that they do. As it turned out, they'd stopped doing it. And so I felt a little cheated and stupid. We settled for an evening at the hotel's hot tub, along with a various assortment of guests. I got talking to an Arkansan police chief who initially tried to bore me with golf talk, which is a perennial problem if you're a Scot abroad. Golf sucks, I said, ever the social lubricant. There was an awkward silence before Emily launched her opening conversational gambit. What's your stance on speeding, she asked him. Well, even I speed sometimes, you know. A couple of miles over the limit every so often. Any more than that's idiotic. I looked at Emily and her me. We regularly did up to 20 miles an hour over the limit without thinking about it. And apart from that close shave with that cop car back in Oklahoma, we'd hardly seen the 5.0 anywhere. Eventually, we got bored of each other and he drifted off to use the pool, leaving Emily and I to stare into the clear night sky without him. In the morning, we took Airport Road to one of the highest points in the valley, from where we could see the whole of the town and miles beyond. Now, here's the weird thing. I had been to Arizona, like I said, a couple of years previously. But as far as I could tell on this trip, the whole city was facing the wrong direction. It does make you wonder when people give testimony in a trial and and they're very honest and, and they appear to be telling the truth and what they're saying can't possibly be true. Maybe there's an element of there is they are telling the truth in that that's how they remember it. I listened to a podcast not that long ago about a soccer player describing his favorite goal. And he admitted that when he's in his mind, when he recreates the goal that he scored, it's he's scoring it in a stadium different to the one that he actually scored it in. And he says he can't help himself. It's just the way it happens. And and I, I guess Sedona's, my, I guess my image of what Sedona was before I got there the second time well, it was clearly wrong. Nobody had moved the city um, 90 degrees. It was just the weirdest thing. I mean, it's not like it had been 10 years since I'd last visited. It was maybe 18 months, but uh, it's the strangest thing. You know, I'm trying to show Emily around and, and we get to a, a, a road junction. And I'm like, hang on. Well, why, is, why is the city facing the wrong way? Just the, the strangest of things. But Sedona can be odd. And, and we're going to find that out coming up.